Hello and welcome to the e-commerce playbook podcast. My name is Andrew Ferris and we have an excellent, excellent, excellent episode for you today. I'm back with the most frequent guest on the show, Taylor Holiday. Hi, say hi, Taylor. Hey, what up? <laughs> it, it's, it's kind of the worst part doing the intro because like that. I just I mean, know how much how, you hate it and how much you redo it. So I like to try and throw I, you off a little. No, it doesn't throw me off. I just think you sound ridiculous. Hey, what up like that? And that's just funny because people don't know what to say. So we have the most frequent guest, Taylor Holiday. CEO of Common Thread Collective. He does a lot of other stuff. He's very smart. And then today we also have on the show a first time guest, hopefully not a last time, uh, and that is Orchid Bertelson. And I'm going to tell you all about Orchid in a second, but first, Orchid, say hi. Maybe say hi better than uh, Taylor did. Hi, everyone. I am so excited to be here. That was like a million times better. I, it's just um, the perfect setup for what she's here to do. Just elevate all aspects. <laughs> on this show, what we do is I tell you about what it is like to uh, live in the world of 4x400 to lead 4x400, which is a holding company that acquires, operates, and grows e-commerce brands. We have talked in some detail about the acquire side. We have talked a lot about the grow side and what we're trying to do tactically to make that happen. And in some ways, we talk about one element of the operate side, but we have talked very little on the whole about what it really means, I think, to, besides my occasional ramblings about sort of my feelings on this podcast, about we have talked much less about what it actually means to lead an organization. Orchid is here today, uh, and I'm going to give you more of her intro in a second, to tell you from a, from a place of deep and serious expertise what it looks like to really lead an organization and to get everybody moving in the same direction. I think you're going to love this episode of this show. I think it's going to be different than a lot of what we've done before and better because it's not just me and Taylor on a me and Taylor episode, so that's going to elevate everything. So anyway, you get what I'm saying. I'm going to jump in. Let's get to it. All right, Orchid, hello for real this time. I'm going to skip the hello to Taylor. Hello, Orchid. It's really Hi. good to talk to you. I'm really excited about this. I'll just be honest because that's part of what the show is. This is the first time we've talked. So I'm I'm excited about getting to know you a little bit because I have heard um, your legend precedes you. Your tales have been uh, told and your song has been sung all out in front of you. I'm going to give you a little quick title intro. Before you have the job you have now, you were the head of consumer experience strategy and innovation at Nestle USA. And now you are the COO of Common Thread Collective. And that is super, super, yes, indeed. Super, super exciting. That is a recent change. That is quite, quite the move from Nestle to CTC and, and really, really exciting. So Taylor, you know Orchid much better than I do. Tell me about how we got here or sort of what you brought Orchid into CTC to do and just kind of give the, give the people some more introduction to Orchid. Yeah, this is great. This is super exciting. We're actually sitting here actually like pre-public launch. So this is so fun to start to think about being able to share this publicly. Well, it's something we've been working on together for a while. But so Orkin doesn't even know this part of the story. I have a secret Twitter list. My secret Twitter list, it's called The Real Ones. And it's my secret. And I titled that It's Dumb, because, but I don't know who can see lists. I don't actually know how the Twitter feature works. So I was afraid to actually title it what I really intended, which are like people I dream of working with someday. And it's just from watching people like uh, one of the things I love about Twitter is that you just get a chance to see people interact so you get to see how they think. But more than that, you also get to watch sort of the empathy with which they approach conversation. It's such a trap to be a place where it's snarky and not helpful and just sort of banter back and forth in an attempt to, attempt to sort of one up each other. And I, I definitely fall prey to this for sure. But I'm always watching like, who are the people that are actually in every message, uplifting, thoughtful, considerate, and then just, just wicked, crazy smart. And Orchid was someone that I watched do that. She's a little bit of a low key lurker on Twitter. I don't know if she would describe herself as a, as a deep enthusiast. She's not an obsessive publisher, but 
candidly, what I did is I, I recognized this is somebody with an incredible purview over a massive organization who every time she talks sort of blows me away with her strategic insight. I reached out for help personally. Like I have an obsession with trying to learn from people when I see a skill that's like just exciting to me. I reached out and said, hey, would you coach me? Could I pay you to talk to me for an hour about strategy? Like how you build a strategic roadmap and deploy it across so many things. Because Nestle, which Orchid I'm sure we'll get into in a second, is such a massive organization with some of the coolest brands in the world. So I wanted to know what was life like doing that? But the first time we talked, she was sitting in a park in San Francisco. I remember it very specifically. And the thing I felt and, and I, is that I can go a million miles an hour. I have a lot of ideas. It's sometimes uh, overwhelming for me. Andrew, you've told me very often that one of my biggest flaws sometimes is that there's too many ideas. People can't keep, can't track. And, and one of your biggest strengths. And this, yeah, totally. this is the, this is the double-edged sword theory of smart, talented people. That yeah. All of us have this. If you are capable in one thing, it's often the same thing that creates problems for you. That's right. So when I talked to Orchid, what I noticed is she would process with me at the same level of speed, like match me, but she took everything I said and constructed it into actionable frameworks in like so simply without ever like flinching and i was like oh my gosh like that is and, and it didn't even like some people it's like over it didn't even like she didn't even flinch it was nothing and i was like oh this is amazing i want to talk to this person more so then i went out and she was she was in la she lived in San Francisco. She came down we spent time together and it was just the same thing it was like when we talked i felt the world move forward the things that I'm dreaming about, I could find a partner and somebody that would help me to move it forward. That's a long-winded setup. We've talked way too much, but I'm super excited. And and I think today, what she's going to help us talk about is what she's here to help do at CTC, which is we've grown a lot. We have a ton of people. We have a big vision. And now we've got to take that strategy and make it come to life. You need to be better about setting expectations because I've got really big, <laughs> lofty legends and, and songs and stuff. But no, I mean, the, the respect is certainly mutual. And we, we will certainly get into this, but I think what Taylor and the organization have built is extremely special. And I wanted to be a part of that. I know we'll talk about that more, but Andrew, I'm excited to get to know you as well to see if you talk a mile a minute like uh, Taylor does. <laughs> I think I think in terms of talking speed, I think Taylor and I are fairly close. I'm a much faster typist than oh, Taylor, but that's uh, not <laughs> It's totally true. Yeah, it's 100% true. But anyway, yeah. Can I, can I, I, we're interrupting. This is probably the worst first five minutes of a podcast ever, but that's okay because that's where we're going. But I have a question. Orchid, can you, to my point, just because I think people would be confused a little by it. I know at first I was. What was your job at Nestle? What did that involve? Like, that's what what I was going to ask, actually. Yeah. Yeah, sure. No, happy to get into it. So, I was at Nestle USA for about six years. So USA is the designator because it's a portfolio of about 40 brands um, spanning different categories, frozen meals, pizzas, baking, beverages, coffee. The brands range anywhere from DiGiorno, Coffee Mate, Lean Cuisine, Life Cuisine, to our acquisitions like Chameleon Cold Brew. We also acquired the Starbucks grocery business a couple of years back. So everything that is sold in a grocery store that is Starbucks branded comes from Nestle as well, which I think is, is not very well known. Nestle overall is the largest food and beverage manufacturer in the world with about, I think it's about 2000 brands worldwide. I don't know because there's a lot of movement in terms of divesting and then also acquisition and also incubating new brands all the time. So before Nestle, I was on the creative agency side and management. I was in management um, consulting before that, but my time at Nestle. So You know, I oversaw effectively, it's an interesting team because I think it's very non-traditional in that it included own channels, 
owned communications, owned platforms. So that included websites, brand.com, D2C, merch stores, and also included CRM, consumer data marketing strategy. And then on the other side was, so innovation was split between new business models and emerging technology. And emerging technology was largely focused on artificial intelligence and automation. And I say that it's not traditional because I think very often you find people who are true innovators focused on that. And then it's a very different skill set and muscle to flex when it comes to optimizing performance-driven platforms. So that's that's what I oversaw at Nestle. Maybe with one kind of simple place to start that's a little bit uh, broader than some of the specifics about kind of building building an organization down. But I know that at Nestle there was, um, like you said, you're con- there's constant incubation of brands. You're you've got D 2 C mixed in with retailers, like all of these these other things going on in a really complex business. You had a quote that Aaron set me up with that I think is interesting because you're coming from such a big place. My guess is you've seen a range of things. The quote was, 2022 is going to be a challenging year for everyone. What it comes down to is if you can't outspend, you have to outsmart. As you kind of look at the D2C landscape from where you are, from having seen big brands, small brands in the US, all everything in between, actual multi-channel, all that kind of stuff. Why do you think 22 is going to be hard? Just kind of give us a sense of like from where you've sat, your lay of the land. I think 2022 is going to be hard because what got the original D2C darlings to IPO and to become large businesses, like a lot of those things don't hold true anymore, right? Like lower consumer acquisition costs, lower you know CPMs on Facebook, things like that. And then I think this is a larger conversation around global supply chain disruption. It's about macroeconomic factors like inflation, but there's environmental factors, right? Because D2C, if you're getting things shipped to your house and you're shipping returns and all that stuff, I do think what's interesting is that platforms like Shopify have made it so easy. And even Etsy is a precursor to that. It, it made everybody who had an entrepreneurial dream, they were able to set up their business very quickly. The barrier to entry is much lower. Competition is higher. And the reality is like, there are some things, especially as I'm coming from food and Bev, I mean, when we think about incremental sales or getting consumers to buy a little more, people are only going to consume 2000 calories a day. You think about share of stomach, share of wallet and things like that. And this is, this is the sequence that you describe, what you, you do, this is like sort of the gift is there's a future thing that's happening, right? Um, that you're describing that you see clearly. There's this set of trends. There's these issues related to both macro environments as well as more industry specific opportunities. And now there's this question about what we do about it as business owners and how you back out all the to a strategic roadmap from there. When we met, the first thing sort of you and I talked about was like, what is your 2024 or three to five year looking at that. And, and it's funny because I think a lot about the future, but I, I spend actually very little time thinking way further that far. I actually have, have thought mostly in years. And I don't know if that's a product of being an early stage business where everything is so short-term cash, like survival mechanism. And really up until I would say the last year and a half where we've gotten to a healthier position where I've had some space where tomorrow wasn't as big of a worry that you begin to now actually but it's a journey, it's a process to getting to that where inside of an organization like yours, I think it's probably more natural where some of those decisions are baked on a short term. You can't actually move things that fast. So is that, do you think that's a function of being inside of a large organization like that? Or has that always been the window in which you've sort of thought strategically? 
five years out is pretty far out. It's kind of, it's almost like that question people ask you on like what you want to be when you grow up. And when we occupy the space that we do, everything changes so quickly. Like Facebook came out my sophomore year of college, right? The idea of building a career around social media just like wasn't a thing. I do think it's really hard sometimes to extrapolate that far out because three years ago, if you were to say, hey, people are spending a lot of money on JPEGs. And yes, that's the dig at you, Taylor. Would we have thought that? No, we wouldn't have thought that. I do think, and yes, I am a Twitter lurker. Um, I feel like I spent a lot of time on there, but I think someone tweeted that strategy is a luxury, right? Strategy is a privilege. And to your point, the business has to be really healthy and you have to have a series of tomorrows in order to plan that strategy. I mean, I think it makes total sense. And as CTC hits this inflection point, like this is this is the right that. time. Okay, so I, I have, part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast together is because I have a sort of game that we can play together with Andrew, okay? And that we're going to co-opt a little bit of... <laughs> Something for him. Finding out about this game right now. So yeah, well, yeah. so so like, I think it's this exercise that we, I think as we go through this in real time, uh, it'll be great. It'll be useful because this is sort of what you did for me. Is let's think out in that distance in a space that maybe, I know you have the pressures of today, like today's worries are sufficient for themselves, but in a space with friends, we can think out a little further. And now Andrew has sort of, in the journey of 4 by 400 we've realized that like a lot of things that most DSC brands go that this hyper growth acquire a bunch of revenue was not the way we capitalize this business it's not the way we go and we want to orient everything around free cash flow and the ability to produce um, a healthy sustainable growth for this business can orient the organization around that so how would you in the same way maybe you did with me look thinking about four by 400 what would you ask him in processing sort of designing a strategic roadmap and understanding the opportunities therein with that. And Andrew, you can add yeah, any questions before. Well, you. let me just say, I think this begins to, I think get, to get back to the quote that you had, to think about this idea of sort of like, you can't outspend, you have to outsmart, right? So Orchid, go ahead, help me outsmart. I think the question is always the, what is your objective? What is your desired outcome? And I think that I say that in a very much more corporate way than than Taylor does, but effectively boils down to tell me your dream. I mean, so I'll tell you exactly what it is. I think let's it is it, right yeah, now. Let's, let's try it. Now, yeah. So I think what it is right now. Um, I, I have to clarify, and this is actually where I'm I'm interacting with one of my with one of our investors a little bit too, who's a PE guy who's got uh, I think a really good sense of how to think about value this way, but like the goal is, is shareholder value, right? So I want to create enterprise for shareholder value for the shareholders for 400. So that's the goal. So then the question back from there for me is how do I create shareholder value? And for a long time, I think I would have been one of the people who would have answered that question with, I would have just thought entirely in terms of EBITDA and then a multiple. So I need to go create whatever EBITDA. If I want to create I don't know, we've talked about $150 million valuation at some point as being a goal. If I want to do that, then I need to create, I don't know, $15 million in EBITDA or something like that, because then I'll get 10X on it, right? Whatever. So forget the specifics of if that's right or not, but let's say that's the goal. What I have now realized and what is, is landing on me in a newer way is that actually EBITDA is nice and does create valuation and that's a real thing, but free cash flow is much better. And that essentially, and especially getting to where we want to get to that a business that can actually produce a bunch of cash is a better business. That might not be the case with an EBITDA number in its operations that actually what's more, not only produces a bunch of cash, but produces a bunch of cash and shows that it can do that repeatedly, right? So that, that actually creates more value. So if I can acquire businesses and then add to their free cash flow as both a percentage and and raw number, then I then I can really, really win. So all that to say, I think that I'm going to create a great outcome for my investors if I can 
create $5 million in free cash flow by year end 2024. Now, don't hold me to that too hard because I'm still in a fairly early stage um, of doing that. There's a couple things baked into that. One of them is that 2024 doesn't happen next. Next is 2022 and 2023. Actually, next is tomorrow. But, but, but 2022 and 2023 are in front of that. That means to get to $5 million, you don't probably go from almost nothing to whatever. That means probably, let's just say for a simple way of doing it, a million free cash flow 2022, 3 million 2023 operating cash, and then 5 million 2025. I think if I do that, I'm going to create a really good outcome for my investors. That makes a ton of sense. I mean, you you kind of answered what my next question would have been after like, what is it your desired outcome is what is shareholder value? You say you want to deliver it. So what exactly is it? And I think the way that you're talking about it is it was cash, right? <laughs> which is, which it is, is totally yeah. great. So I think that is how I'd shape the exercise is like by 2024, what is your goal? And then you would say, all right, what are some milestones that we're going to hit over the next couple of years? And then the next layer down is like, where is that money going to come from? Where's that opportunity going to come from? It's, it's funny because I have a lot of conversations where I remind people that there are really only three ways. You sell more to the same consumers, you sell to more consumers, or you cut costs. But then the question is going to be, which one of those three is the lever that you're going to pull? And you can pull a combination of those. What's nice about operating a portfolio company is that you start to see uh, different connection points and opportunities by looking at the cross-brand power in that portfolio effect. If we talk about, we can start with like cutting costs first. Are there shared services between time and money, although money is the, is the goal, but that you can free up by centralizing. The way that I think about it is like, all right, are there shared legal costs? Are there shared financial costs and media, all that stuff, right? And then when it comes to media, when you're looking across the portfolio, all right, like what are those sister brands? Are there brands who can band together to create more of a lifestyle or more of an intentionality, right? And how do you kind of bundle them together? That's after the, all right, here are my targets annually. Then I would do a layer down and say, all right, where do I think this opportunity is going to come from? That's really good. And actually one of the things that has been freeing for me as a leader is that actually once I've gotten more clarity there, it's started to allow me to ask some of these questions and gives me a, a goal to aim at. The only, I think I mentioned this maybe on another episode recently, but the only comparison I can make to this is, is the way that I interpret baseball because I'm a huge baseball fan. So every possible play in baseball that I see, I can break it down into its component or every player I see, I can break down the component parts into what I believe they're doing to create value for the team. Like I know now what offense and defense does and velocity for a pitcher and whatever, all of these different things. And, and even if they don't work out, I can say, here's what the team is probably trying to get out of this player in these particular ways, because these all ladder up to create runs and runs is how you create wins. And there's all kinds of elements of that. So what I'm starting to be able to do, I think more than I ever have before actually is start kind of that last step of that little thing I just laid out, which is sort of the runs and wins part. The wins are the goal in the company, in this case, free cash flow is the goal in the company, or maybe shareholder value or whatever. Let's put those two things kind of together. And then, and then how do I then create the dollars that goes into the free cash flow, which maybe I'd call the runs in that case. And then each individual team member, each unit, whatever is doing that. So one of the things that's been very, very surprising about 4 400 and has been directly contrary to the thesis of when we set it up is that the last thing that we have found has sort of a, an economy of scale or like a, uh, a shared services multiplier value is marketing. So we, what we expected was that when we set this up was that sort of like by sharing marketing services, what we have would be able to do. And I was talking with, um, I think it was Kelsey Larich, uh, Larich, Larich, who I had on the show about this from 365 Holdings, another holding company. And he was saying this the same point that like, 
it's one of the hardest things to share has been marketing. It's actually more in like the operations supply chain side of things where we're starting to go like, oh, we're maybe getting better faster at finding some ways to create economy of scale and to create shared value in this sort of thing by like sharing fulfillment and even thinking about some other things there. So we're not even really there yet on a lot of them. In fact, we've had to break down this principle to some degrees. And now maybe we're kind of building it back up with better management and better operations. But but on the cutting cost side, that's the first thing that came to my mind is that the expectation is that on the we'd be able to sort of like share all of this cost and therefore reduce cost um, across these brands. And that's been a much harder thing to do than what I expected. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And then what's funny too, is like when you focus on supply chain where it's very, very clear, the savings you're going to have or the value you generate and marketing gets a little fuzzier too, then there, I think there's a habit to go all in on supply chain. And then you end up losing kind of brand equity as you're growing those brands, right? Because it's not as trackable or measurable, but I did want to build on your baseball analogy. I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense how you're thinking about it. And part of it too is like you get later and later in the game, like your tactics, although you have the goal in mind, your tactics and like the size of the bets and the risks you're willing to take get larger <laughs> as you get a little closer to the end. So I do think that's a really great analogy for, that's for really what we're talking about here. So I have a question. So one of the things I struggle with, and, I, and, I, and I'd be curious, because I'm looking back at our email exchange from early on, Orchid, and, and you sent me this email. <clears throat> and as we were going through this three-year roadmap, you gave me this set of things. The, there was bullet points. Think about what your ambitions are for 2024. How big is your business? What will you have achieved? What does success look like on a day-to-day basis? What will your team look like? What do you need to achieve? What do I need to achieve my ambition, resources, capabilities, technology? And then this interesting exercise of also make a list of the different things you had your team focus on in the past year. Now separate them into important versus interesting. Important meaning that they were valuable to your business, made a material impact and interesting meaning in hindsight, you didn't have to do anything to address this and or wasted resources pursuing it. There's a set of things there, but starting with the beginning, one of the things I always wonder about is this idea of like the single metric and how worth the sort of clarity and succinctness of the vision matters versus a broader sense of what it will look like and the more parameters that you get in. I think about this for CTC, right? Like where I would say that right now we're undertaking like a number of simultaneous initiatives that cannot almost be consolidated down into a single metric. If you if you think about something like a financial outcome, there's actually constraints under which achieving that financial outcome would be a failure under the premise that CTC is operating and I would I would suggest. How do you think about how succinct the vision needs to be versus how elaborate it needs to be in terms of its its detail? I think the bigger you get, the more specific your vision needs to be. And there can be different layers of it, right? There could be directionally what what the value and mission of the company is. And then it's kind of like brand planning where you have your big idea, right? You've got your big idea, your brand really stands for, then you've got individual campaigns under it. How I would think about like the big idea is what your company stands for, what you want to enable. And then like the different campaigns are kind of like how you're going to get there. You can create a level of specificity depending on where you're at. But the reason why I said the bigger you get, the more specific you need to be is because you start to have more diverse types of people, of thinking. Not everybody's a mind reader. When you're small, you tend to, we tend to gravitate people who think like us, right? Who like talk fast, who like are extroverts in a way. There's a lot that you can leave up to assumption because you can kind of make those um, connection points, right? Like kind of mind meld moments. But as you get bigger and as you get further and further away from a lot of the employees, you have to be very specific because they might go down an entirely different path. And and Taylor, we've talked about this. 
the challenge isn't that but I think it sounds like within CTC and obviously I'm very early on my journey with the company, but the problem isn't that people aren't willing to take hills. They're ready. They're willing to take hills, but sometimes they take the wrong ones. Even early on in my career, I would look around and I see something not happening. And I was, if I don't see something, I assume it's not happening. So I'm going to do something against that. Now the intentions are good, but as you get bigger, it is not possible to be everywhere to know everything, regardless of the level that you're at. I just haven't seen that level of transparency in a large organization. For us, it's about being intentional of separating important from interesting so that people don't burn out, so that people are all focused on delivering the performance that we're all here to do. It's The good thing is that it's much easier to steer something that is in motion than to get something that stops to be in motion. That makes so much sense to me. And I think I think that another challenge is this is not even a big and small thing, but is just remote culture makes it, like it makes it really challenging to see what people are doing. So then, of course, people talk about this being the value of the office is the sort of like shoulder rubbing effect, essentially, where it's like just by being near each other, information transfer is much, 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 much easier. So on a small team in particular, and to be honest, this is always how I've thought about 4500 as long as we've been small is sort of like. I'm not very concerned about getting operationally tight yet because from a sort of like internal management perspective, because we can cover over that with like high quality people who are people of character who work hard and like, and then like you kind of get some information transfer and it just kind of like at the early stage, I just didn't really worry too much about that. But I've already seen this, especially I think I've been slow to see how important this is, but especially remote how much it really makes a difference when you are not connected in quite the same ways. You just don't get those kinds of effects and you can't paper over a lack of clarity around what's important quite quite so easily. And that's that's been a real challenge for me. I know, I think Taylor, you've expressed information silos being a real challenge for CTC as well. And I'll tell you, when I think about this free cash flow thing, I think a lot about just sort of like, Whenever, almost every time I think about this, I think, what does that mean for a graphic designer? Because like, it's really easy to figure out how creating free cash flow can can immediately ladder down into objectives for people running supply chain or logistics or whatever, right? Like, or, or even marketing executive types or paid media people or something. All of those are so number based. I don't know, sh- figure out how to ship it there for cheaper. Like that's the logistics answer to it. And like supply chain, it's like get better deal terms. It's there's the uh, answers are right in front of your face, but when you get more complexity and more roles, like, and some roles that are less connected to obvious financial out- outcomes, it becomes, this is where I've like, and uh, you'll probably get a slack from me at some point or get asking you how to handle this, but like to really think through how do I then work with my designers and my people who are doing that to say, how does your work connect with the big important goal? Because then when I don't see their work and because there is siloing that's going to happen remote in particular, and, and even if we were in an office, there'd still be siloing happening to some degree, or if we were just bigger, then I know they have clear KPIs around the big goal and that those things are all laddering up. And I'm not saying I need to want, need to you know come down and sort of like paternalistically set the goal for them, but I mean, to like sort of help them and coach them to think through that. And, and I would consider from the other angle too, is that your graphic designers want to know that they have an impact on the business, a material impact. Yeah, so that's so thing, good. Yeah, one thing too, because if they don't see the impact of their work, then they may ask like, why am I even doing this? One thing that I've been thinking about, and maybe it's close to a midlife crisis, we don't know, maybe it's the COVID effect, is this idea of effort versus impact or this like effort impact ratio, right? Because in a lot of organizations, everything feels really high effort with seemingly minimal impact. 
And impact can be defined as business impact, but also personal impact. The reality is that we all are at-will employees. <laughs> we can go wherever we want. We can do whatever we want, especially when we're surrounded by really smart people. They are here to be a part of the mission. And if they feel like their work does not contribute to the health of business, to supporting the clients, to whatever it is, like they're going to disengage. And Taylor and I have, I think we have many conversations lined up to talk about the importance of employee engagement. I'm going to kick it to you, Taylor, because I'm sure you're going to have some things to say. But the, the thing I want to say here is that this could be a rabbit trail for me that goes a long way because I think we're actually talking about like philosophy and theology now. Yeah. Um, I really, I really do. I, like, I think like this becomes like, what does it mean to go to work and have output? Purpose is like the new thing that I think is a very hot desire for people. And I think of purpose as this expression of equation that I would say includes belonging plus contribution. Belonging involves being able to be myself in the place that I'm at and feeling accepted and appreciated for that. But it's not enough. Everyone wants that, but it's not enough on its own. You actually have to feel that you are a contributing member of the community as well. And the, and you could probably layer on like some sort of shared vision into that as well. But that second piece, that contribution piece is really, really critical. You have to think about how does each person feel like the way that this place is going or the, the, the place that, the, the, that this organization is going, I have a role to play that is critical and important in it, right? Doing that, like you're both saying, is something I think a lot about. And then the sort of, when we think about TMYD, one of the things that I think about is that the answer might not actually be that this job is in aligned with the place that you personally want to go forever, right? But what I've found is that if I can- Let me interrupt you. I don't know if everybody knows what you're talking about there, but I think it's a really helpful point that you're making to, to connect to it. So when you say TMYD and and that yeah. that disconnect between your expectation for TMYD and what people are experiencing there, like talk about that. Yeah, so so we, we started TMYD under this premise that the relationship between a company and its employees should be symbiotic. In other words, that like if I if you're here and to help- Maybe tell people what TMYD is just in case- they Yeah, so know. Tell Me Your Dreams is a program inside of CTC where every employee that we have works with a- licensed coach to equip them with an identification of the dream that they have for their life. We put them in cohort groups to pursue them. We celebrate them every Monday at CTC's Dream Day. It's, a, it's a really the backbone of a lot of our cultural pursuit and our mission, which is to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. And we include our employees in that definition, right? That we're here to help them do that. And, and it was born out of a lot of my early experiences as an employee where I felt like I was in service of the company, but the company wasn't in service of me, right? Like that it was a, it was an exploitive relationship. It wasn't a symbiotic one. And so my sort of premise was, could we create a mutual exchange here that says, if you're going to be in service of the dreams of the company, the company will be in the service of your dreams. And that that way, if you show up to work every day, knowing you're closer to becoming the person that you want to be, even if this time at this company is a step in that journey, it's not the end destination, then you'll be deeply satisfied in that exchange. Because for some people, maybe this work isn't ultimately the thing that they want to do. And it's a, it's a development phase towards their next thing. And there's a real tension inside of CTC, I think, in terms of whether people believe that potentially convincing folks that they're not, that being in the place that they're in is not what they ultimately want is good or bad. But I think what I've always just longed for is a lot of what everybody's describing is that I wanna be a contributing member of, an, of a group of people towards a mission that I care about. I wanna understand it. I wanna have my own sense of why I'm doing it that aligns with my own personal values that are sort of separate and distinct from the organizational values. and hopefully they have overlap. So I don't know, I, I think this idea of how do you create engagement being born out of this sense of 
belonging and contribution, I, I totally agree with. And you're saying that some people, the expectation, right, was that in a lot of cases, you, you, what you thought would happen was that at TMYD, everybody would say, I have a different, they would discover a dream for their life that's not work, right? And that it would be something else. But what you're finding is that some people actually really like their job and really want to like keep growing there. And when they think about what they want to do next, they want to grow at CTC and make more money and, and do good work and all that. There's something, the reason I I paused on that and like stopped in this, I think it's really interesting as an indicator of exactly what Orchid was getting at, which is, a, which is this thing that like, maybe people don't even have necessarily a vision outside of this, but that they do want to output something that matters in some way. Giving them a connection to that, even if it's just at a job in a way, can really, really make a difference. And it doesn't. the job doesn't have to be secondary to their thing if they don't have another thing, so to speak. Is this, is this where Taylor and I talk about how much we hate the term work-life balance? I was going to take us there because I do want to do that. But I also want to make sure we pause on the like four by 400 goals thing and and if there's anything else that you wanted to hit there, you or Taylor finish well, that and then come and then we can cut. And then I want and then let's book, let's footnote this and say, we'll come back to this work-life balance thing. But we already got there. And I just want to make sure that if there's anything else in that sort of like conversation around cash flow laddering down to people's individual work, well, was there anything else that we wanted to hit? Orchid, my question for you, like when I think about it, one of the things that I find is that the premise of free cash flow as a financial objective is, is a, is a, concept that took me many years to even understand sort of in terms of how is this distinct from profit how does this impact that to me that has, also been, a, that has been a huge challenge for me i'm pretty yeah. numerate and that's been a real challenge for me right so i think about that now as, as a thing i have to deploy and educate against to make it make sense to people to wonder how we're doing because like the things that are obvious are like i can see the shopify revenue number but like when the money is due for inventory purchasing and how that affects cash flow and why there would be money, how you could make profit but not have cash. Like these are more sophisticated financial ideas. I wonder if there's not like a, a proxy for that in some way for the organizational statement that, that I wonder about. So my question to you would be, how do you think about the clarity of the vision strategically in terms of the adoption of it? I think you're not going to get adoption without clarity. Uh, there you go. <laughs> right? Because if you're clear about what the goal is and everyone is clear on it and they are understanding the role of free cash flow in a healthy business and their particular role in generating that, they're going to want to do it. How do you Yeah, that's uh, yeah, go ahead, Taylor. How do you assess present understanding. So this is another thing in a remote world, one of the things that I've found, or just like even in training and education. So Walker Williams, who runs our learning and development at Common Thread Collective, he's like obsessive in a really great way about pre-assessment, post-assessment for an actual clarification of present state of knowledge when you develop a training program. And I think it's, it's been a, such a helpful learning to me to just uh, avoid assumptions about present knowledge. So as a, as a thing like that, how do you think about assessing whether or not you're being clear? Like when you give a strategic vision, Orchid, how do you assess your the people's understanding of it as you deliver it you ask a lot of questions right because i think it's very easy to try to bring the tablet down from the mountain and pontificate on what the mission is and like in your head i think we all have that moment it's actually so my stepdad is a bit avid what is it called why why am i just blanking on this what is the holy grail hold on monty python Sorry. okay so my stepfather's an avid monty python fan one of the movies that he made me watch growing up was Life of Brian. In Life of Brian, there's a scene where he's on the balcony and he's preaching to a crowd and he's like, we're all individuals. And the people are like, we're all individuals, right? 
But I think it's very easy to have that moment where you're like, I'm seeing this thing and they're repeating back this thing. And so they must get it, but they don't. The only way to do that is to ask questions of saying, all right, when I say this, or when I did that, like feedback is a gift, right? Like, what did you think? What was your takeaway? How would you describe it back to me? And then to your point about education and training, I mean, there's, there are only so many learning modules one person can take, right? It's almost like the current school system where, all right, are you actually going to use this knowledge or are you just going to ace the test and never think about it again? I do think that there is this like paired role of training and then also active implementation and learning within the organization and applying what you're learning, which is far better, in my opinion, than any business school or any program you can go to because you're literally learning something one day and applying it to your job and to your business the next day. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing in this remote world. I like one of the things I have to constantly remind people is this idea of checking for understanding. And I think that I think that's what you're getting at with asking questions is to. Yep. And to even as you teach, one of the things I've thought a lot about is my hesitation is to go on this like big, long journey to understanding and then bring an outcome back versus bringing people onto the journey of the communication of how I got there in a way that they can adopt it for themselves too. And then just the, in this remote world, what I hear a lot is people in communication where someone will say, I didn't do something or, or I didn't know. And it'll be like, I sent that in Slack. And there's sort of the, the end game is like, because I distributed the information, my I'm absolved of the responsibility of the absorption of it. And I would just say as leaders, like you don't get to absolve yourself of the absorption of the information. You actually have to go all the way through the checking for understanding. I completely agree. And I think to your point about bringing people along the journey, I mean, it's effectively showing the math, right? Because, and this is what we'll talk about too, I'm sure at a later time, but this idea of people management, of the people who are strong individual contributors to rise up in organizations, to get a bigger title, to get paid more, oftentimes they have to start to manage teams. There's a very big difference between making the decisions yourself and defining success for yourself versus enabling success through others, which looks very, very different. If you protect your team from all of the angst of getting there, they will never learn, right? They will continually and consistently look to you for the answer. That creates like a very weird, it's kind of like your kids, right? If I want my child to stop asking me for mac and cheese, I got to teach her how to make mac and cheese for herself. Now she's four, so she's probably not going to do it yet. But at a point, she will learn to make mac and cheese for herself. Uh, that's a great, great analogy. And and probably if she did try to do it right now, she would screw it up really, really bad, right? And that's yes. what you're trying to stop them from. <laughs> I have this, I have a two-year-old. It's the, it's the challenge of like my constant desire to do it for him because of like just going, I can help you fix that. But then I have to just remind myself. And thankfully my wife is awesome about this of going like, no, 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 him sucking at it is like part of the deal. That's how he learns. And it's like really, and Taylor, you and I have been talking about this recently. This is a really funny thing. Like, I think I just recorded an episode. It'll, by the time this, the one we're doing now comes out about sort of like this process and this journey that I feel like I'm on right now. I've been a CEO now, I don't know, like a little over a year and a half, I guess. And I'm realizing like, oh my gosh, there's so all these things that were things that I actually did believe before. I did believe that they that they were true, but I had just simply had not internalized them. I did not I had not created real conviction about them. And it's because I hadn't gone through the work myself and and experienced them. And and now they're actually becoming internal convictions. And that's then a place from which I can operate, figuring out how to help my team do that, among other things. And Taylor, you've talked about this too, is sort of just giving people the freedom to fail while also doing your absolute best to check for understanding and teach with clarity and 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 present with clarity. I actually want to put a button on that now and come back to the other conversation. So sorry for terrible hosting for 
leading us in a few directions. But with a few, just a few minutes left, let's talk about coming back to sort of meaning making at work and how that affects individuals there. Um, okay, Orchid, you you actually are the one who who took us here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna just go to you. Why do you hate the phrase work life balance? And then Taylor, <laughs> you can answer the same question. Because it it stresses me out, <laughs> and I think and I think because it creates this false <laughs> expectation, right? This like because when you think about balance, you think 50-50. and then you think about this delineation between work and your personal life. And the reality is, it's all kind of mixed together now. It kind of was mixed together before COVID, and I think COVID exacerbated it. But you can, we probably all need some sort of therapy. But like, I derive a lot of my self worth from the work that I do. And if I were to reject that or say that's wrong, like that's just not possible. Like that is just how I'm wired. For me, it's not, the stress came from, okay, now I need to be completely logged off and now I am back in. And now I guess like I've spent like four hours here. So I need to do four hours there. It was always striving for this like false ideal that I just don't think is exists. And I also think it's a pretty antiquated idea. This idea of, can you delineate your personal passions from your work passions? Like I can't really, and that's something I will cover with my therapist, but it is one of those things where how do you um, make sure that the relationships in your life, whether it's with your family, your friends, your community, and also your relationship with your work and your coworkers all kind of interact in harmony rather than in conflict with that's why I reject this idea of work-life balance. Yeah. For me, it's very similar. I just think that like, it's a little semantics of me, but like life is the outer circle and work is a subset of it. It's not like a thing that you put in relationship with life. Like your life is the whole of you. Work is a subset of, I like to think of, I'm interested in having conversations about work home balance or work vacation balance or work hang out with friends balance but but to me the phrase work life suggests that work is a thing that removes you from your life and i would just argue that no it's actually like maybe for many of us the largest component circle of it to, to separate it communicates to yourself or like for me at least it communicates to me that in order to live i have to not work and i actually find deep purpose in my work in ways that actually are positively beneficial to my life <laughs> i don't think of them as odds with one another. Now, it is really important for me to have conversations about work, my children balance, work, my wife balance, work or distribution of my time across those different areas. And those are worthy conversations that that will vary at different times. I remember, so I have twin boys that are seven and a daughter that's four. At one point I had three kids under three years old and in a startup going. And those were really hard days because it was what my friend Dane Sanders likes to call the four burners problem. Like all the areas of my life were turned on really, really hot. There was no balance. You were exhausted, but there's times where it's sort of one's turned down and one's turned up and there's a constant distribution of yourself across them relative to your present needs. And I think the key is to be, have space to be in tune with yourself, to be in tune with the people you care about most and love and to check and ask, how am I right now in my availability to you? Are you getting from me what you need? to assess your children and to watch them closely and care about them and their development and to take space every now and again to consider like your own life. Am I satisfied? Am I distributing myself the way I like? And then work from there. I mean, I agree with everything so far. And I think the, the two circles thing is really helpful. I actually think it illustrates nicely what Orchid is getting at. The idea that life is the outer circle because work is part of that. And that right. it's okay to love your work. It's interesting to 
think about that from the perspective of somebody who maybe feels less purpose in their work and and just has to work because that's part of how work is sometimes. Yeah, that's real and, for some and people. So, so that's so another privilege problem. So there's yeah. maybe some, right, there's maybe a privilege element of this too is to, to, to have the kind of work that does that, which I think is probably important to recognize. The the thing that I think is interesting in the way that you both express that, and I and I feel this 100%, is that you're just, you, I, th- I think if it's fair to say that you both describe that as work is something that has magnetic pull in your life. And that, so you have to check in to make sure you're, you're resisting it at times, as opposed to saying that this is the, the fault. Life has the magnetic pull. I know we're not actually using that distinction, but you know what I mean, right? Non-work, like these relationships has the magnetic and, and that you have to like, all right, fine. I'll put these down and go do work. Like what we're all, and I, I totally see, I'm not being critical. I, I feel the same thing that like you, you, that you have to create active energy to resist the magnetic pull. And the magnetic pull that is sort of like the passive energy that's pulling all the time is work. And I think that's also the challenge that people are getting at in Orchid. It sounds like some of what you're wrestling with here is like, okay, that's going to happen, first of all. So I want to make sure that that magnetic pull is something I care about, okay, as much as I can, as much as I'm able to. Because if, if I'm going to be pulled toward it, I don't want to get a couple of years down the road and be like, I just got pulled towards this thing and I actually didn't care about it at all. I just happened to be that way from a sort of broader purpose perspective. But I, I guess the question for me is like, why... Why is it that work has magnetic pull like that? Why does work do that? It almost sounds like you're describing Netflix. Like like when I get home and I know that I would rest better, my rest would be more effective if I sat quietly for a little bit or if I practice mindfulness or something. But we talk about something like mindfulness as discipline and you have to like create discipline. Whereas Netflix in that case has the magnetic pull. Oh, this would be easy, I'll do it. So why does work have magnetic pull like that? Taylor, uh, I think maybe you were gonna say something. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's that's that's the uh, that's the question. Even earlier, answer it, Orchid. Give, yeah. give us the exact give us the exact perfect answer on this question yeah. succinctly. It's funny because when Taylor and I um, met in person for the first time in LA, he asked me a question. He's like, "What made you? <laughs> like, what made you the way that you are?" I was like, "Ah, well, no one's really asked me that question." I was like, "It's probably some kind of like." deep childhood trauma coming from divorced parents in an immigrant family, like paired with capitalism. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, right. But, but it was, it was a really interesting question because there are just a lot of facets of, of my life and my personality where I am deeply interested in solving problems in creatively solving problems, whether it's in my personal life or in my professional life. Even when I was referring earlier about that effort to impact ratio I, I don't try to adjust for effort because I know I'm always going to give over a hundred percent because that's how I'm wired. And if I were to, like, I am not someone who phones it in the idea of doing that really actually stresses me out. So it's actually much better if I just continue to do 110%. And I know that that's not the same for everyone. But so the thing that I can't adjust for is effort because I am wired the way that I am. And I have to choose to love myself and accept myself for all of the great pieces of me and all the flaws of me. And I'm not, I'm not going to change unless someone I care about is like, Hey, maybe you got to watch out for this, but I can change the level of impact I have. For me, moving from my entire career has been at large international country or companies. For me, I'm like, all right, well, my effort level is not going to change. I got to change my impact. 
I need to be in a situation in a company with people and leaders like Taylor, where I think that I can really create a large impact. I don't know why I'm wired the way that I am, but it is what it is. Work is magnetic. And I think to your point, it is absolutely a privilege that I am in a situation where I get to spend the time doing the things that I love to do, knowing that not everybody gets that privilege. Yeah, there's no, yeah, that's so good. And, and I, I think that question of asking people, so I think so much of my journey, I would say, especially as we've been going through so much of this DEI initiative at CTC and doing the work on my own to understand my own racial identity and other parts, what it's led me on a journey of is like the understanding of my worldview and what comprises it and what are the forces that impact it. The premise of the gravitational pull is in a question of the evaluation of the forces that pull at you. And, and I know for me that so much of in it are what I would say are positive intended forces, uh, the things of genuinely longing to see people, others achieve their dreams and be a force for moving them forward in their situation. And then candidly, there are other forces, which are, I like praise of an adoration. I like to be thought of as capable. Like I have moments where I like probably am power hungry or whatever it might be. Like the, the, they're all in there. There's no single force. There's a collection of forces. There's also other expressions of some of these things that get put into worse places that I think sometimes what we're all doing is sort of like trying to find the best manifestation of our negative forces into the thing that's the least destructive. And that's sort of like uh, a lot of what life is attempting to do is like this balance of find better forces and also mitigate the negative ones into the healthiest possible outlet that I think is a part of all of us. And and you you do that and you learn. And I think having the space to, again, evaluate and have people around you that can reflect on what you're responding to. It's just such a gift it's just, and a process. I have a friend that likes to ask this question. Like if you were lying to yourself, would you want to know about it? And I, I've come to like really love this, this form of reflection an opportunity to sort of examine the present worldview that you're living in. All right. We did end on a, on a more maybe philosophical kind of note and that's fine. We are out of time. So I, what I would actually like to do at some point is have a follow-up because the, the reason to ask this question was not just to do public therapy, though Aaron Orndorff loves it when we do that kind of thing, and especially the first time we've ever met Orchid, sorry. But actually, because I think the really interesting question down from there, from a sort of professional perspective, is sort of what does that mean about our expectations for culture building and for that kind of thing? Like, if that's our expectations for ourselves, and if that's the kind of things we're wrestling with internally, what does that mean about what we're trying to build and our expectations for others in an organization, how we help people find purpose around work or not? As you think about things like sort of the technical ends of like, Here's a number that we need to hit as an organization. That's a big goal for all of us, free cash flow, maybe, or whatever. How does that drill down? How do you teach that information and how do people master something that's sort of a more a technical skill, professional skill mixed with the human element of like, what does it mean to be a person at work and to try to build culture around that? So maybe we talk more about the person at work thing a little bit more next time, but that is all the time we have today. So, um, so Orchid, thanks for coming on. Taylor, thanks for taking time and making it happen as well. Um, as always, really, really, really enjoyed this conversation a lot, Orchid, and I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you so much. And I would love to do a subsequent session on philosophy and putting philosophy into action because that's when magic happens. Because I think it's very easy to get very tactical or to be very philosophical. It's like connecting those two together that that is really magic. Okay, so you have my contact information. Let's just look at it. <laughs> Yes. I mean, I mean, no, I'm serious. I like, that sounds great. Let's do that. And we'll, maybe we'll bring Taylor back or maybe we'll kick him out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But actually I think Taylor would be great on that subject as well. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Everybody who is listening. Thank you so much. Orchid, what is your Twitter? It's handle? just at Orchid Bertelson. 
Okay, cool. At Orchid Girls, we will link down the show notes. Go follow her right now, and you can have a little slice of Taylor's The Real Ones Twitter list, even though you don't get his actual list. I'm not going to ask if I'm on it because I'm right, you're already I've already captured you, so you're good. You're, yeah, I know, I know. You don't need That's to. Yeah. Listen to no, real life. No, uh, it's fine. And at Taylor Holiday on Twitter, I'm at Andrew J. Ferris. Those obviously always want to be um, bringing conversation there as much as possible. If there's something you loved about this, please reach out to all of us. Tag us all. Ask a question. Tell us why we're wrong. I'm sure we're wrong about a lot. Do that. And then as always, also rate, review, uh, subscribe, tell your friends. We appreciate it very much when you do all of that kind of stuff. Thank you very much.